I've kind of titled this, uh, this series or this lesson study as Preparing for the Kingdom. Uh, we're going to talk about what that means here in just a minute. Um, it's actually going to be focused on the events of the second advent. Just like Jesus' first advent, there was a lot of things that he, that he did. He was born, he went through his early childhood, he was baptized and declared to be the Son of God, and he began his earthly ministry, and then he ministered on earth for three years, and then he went to the cross to fulfill the purpose he came for the second advent. In the same way, this, in the first advent, in the same way, the second advent has a, a range of events that lead us to the millennial kingdom. The second advent is not the same as the day of the Lord, but it's part of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is that time period between the very beginning of the second advent or the second coming of Christ and the end of the millennial kingdom uh, or the beginning of the eternal order. So the day of the Lord is that long period of time that begins with the beginning of the second advent and ends with the beginning of the eternal order. So uh, keep that in mind. The second advent is the first stage of the day of the Lord, as we will see as we go through our study together. Now, for you that are new here, I did write a book on, it's from eternity to eternity, and in this book, which is an overview of the entirety of human history, from creation to the final creation of the new heaven and new earth, it's a summary of God's purpose and plan. And the purpose of this book was to show how every bit of the Bible fits together. God has one purpose in the creation of man and the redemption of man to get to an eternity with glorified men that he can fellowship with and enjoy forever. And so this book here was just written to show that from Genesis to Revelation, it's all one narrative. It all has a purpose and it all fits together. If any part of your understanding of one Bible book doesn't fit with the other Bible book, then something's wrong with your interpretation. It has to all fit. It's one, it's one revelation completed and it all fits together to give us God's purpose. So if you don't have one of these and you want one of these, Kay's got some back there, you're welcome to get one. And in the middle of writing this book, I got to this point in time in the history of mankind where we're getting ready to go to the tribulation and the, the events of the second advent. And in this book, I just said, by mistake, I guess, I said I'm going to write another book to give details about this particular time. So now part of the reason for this study is so I can focus on that and get that done. So just bear with me as we go through that. But I hope it will be good for you to have different understandings. As a church, we are what we call a premillennial church, which means we believe the Lord Christ is coming back to set up the kingdom. That's what premillennial is. And we'll talk about those different aspects of that in just a few minutes. So I think it's good for you to understand why we hold to that view and what that view means. Uh, because there's other churches and other, there's some in our church that don't understand or don't hold to that view also. So we want to look at all the aspects that cause confusion about this subject and give clarity on that. I want to begin, though, with a reminder of why we have the Word of God and what, it, what does it mean as we look at the Word of God. There are two kinds of revelation that God gives. The one is general revelation. So if you go to Romans chapter 1, just real briefly, uh, Romans chapter 1, it talks about two kinds of general revelation that is available to all people. 
In Romans verse one, chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, having, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse." For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, two things about general revelation. First is that when we were made in the image of God, and then we have become in the image of Adam, the fallen man, that didn't change the fact that every human being has a consciousness of God. God has put within every human being the evidence in them, in their consciousness, that there is a God. Therefore, they knew that there's a God, and they chose willfully to say there's no God. Okay? So every human being has in their consciousness an awareness that there is a God. That is general revelation given to every human being. Also, general revelation is the creation. You see the creation, and you know that there's a God. So we have that revelation that there is a God, He created the world, and He placed within every man a consciousness that there is a God. Now, man has rejected that consciousness, has seared his consciousness, and gone against God, and then that passage goes on to say that God gives them over to a reprobate mind because they pursue the desires of their heart to rebel against God and to say there's no God. So that's the, the first thing. Everybody has that. The second area of revelation is special revelation. And that comes from what God has spoken and delivered to us, okay? And so what we have in the Bible is the revelation of God that he spoke that was given to the prophets, the apostles, those that wrote the books of the Bible to write down as the inspired, written revelation of God, okay? So if you go to 1 Peter, I mean 2 Peter, chapter 1... Let's see if that's right. Uh, yeah, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we, heard, and we ourselves heard... This utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So here it gives clear indication that everything written down we have was given to those men by the Spirit of God to write down the utterances of God. And it's not your right to privately interpret something that was written down from God apart from what it was intended to mean when it was written down. So that just means we have to be careful that we do not misunderstand or misinterpret the scriptures that were written by the utterances of God. Okay? So that's the first thing we've got to do. Now, in Hebrews chapter 1, it talks about the Old Testament prophets. 
It says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he has made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So here it says... In the Old Testament, long ago, God spoke through various prophets. And then when Christ came, he spoke through Jesus Christ. And then when Christ ascended, he had spoken through his apostles. It says in chapter uh, 2, verse 2, it says, For the word spoken through angels, the angels were the mediator of getting the word of God to Moses and to others. If the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at first spoken through the Lord? It was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own." And we know from Ephesians that God first gave to the church apostles and prophets, which means that God gave the words to the apostles and prophets, which they wrote down, and that's what we have recorded in the New Testament. So we have the Old Testament recorded writings of the prophets of old. We have the teachings of Jesus conveyed by the apostles in the writing of the New Testament, and the New Testament is complete. So now we have the intended revelation of God. It doesn't mean there's not more revelation that God gave that wasn't written down. It doesn't mean that there's not more revelation that God could have given. It just means everything that God has intended for us to know, He has given through the prophets and the apostles, and it has been written down in the Word of God. Okay? So, in 2 Timothy, when Paul is uh, talking or writing to Timothy, he makes clear that Timothy understands that the importance of the written scriptures. He says in verse 16 to 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Now as we get into start talking about this subject of the second advent of Christ and the understanding of prophetic words, then it's pretty important that we understand that they have been, there have been systems of theology that have developed over time. Okay, so you hear words like dispensationalism. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a dispensationalist? Huh? <laughs> it means that during various times of human history, God is operating in different ways. Now, so the problem with dispensationalism is you have ultra dispensationalists or radical dispensations that take that idea and they impose that there are different ways of salvation at different times. So you have to be careful that you do not get caught up in a system of theology that causes you to misinterpret Scripture. Okay, so if you take the Bible, as you, if you, as you go through that series on that, if you take the Bible as a whole, you understand that from the time of the fall until the time of the flood, there were no nations. There was no Israel. There was no church. There were no nations. There were individual families. And the individual families had the responsibility to lead their family in the ways of God. So Adam started and he failed his first son. His first son, Cain, killed his second son, Abel. So there's no guarantees that your child is going to 
be righteous and godly. So, but from the time of the fall until the time of the flood, you had the word of God being portrayed down from those who received a special word from God, which was Adam, and then Noah got words. Other of those patriarchs got words from God that were the only revelation they had. So they had to go from Adam to Noah speaking the truths that God gave to Adam. Now, Adam lived 930 years, and Noah was born shortly after that Adam died because Noah was 500 years old when the flood happened, and I think the flood happened in 1656, the year 15, 1656 after Adam was created. So there wasn't a lot of time span between Adam's death and Noah's birth. So you had a, you had a lot of, of overlap of people that lived that could convey the truths that they learned. Adam, by far, had the most truth that he learned because he was there. He was created, and he fell, and he, he knew God in the, in the garden, and all these things he could share with the people uh, directly. But during that time, there was, again, it, it was a dispensation of time in which there was no government, and there was no prophets being speaking the word of God, and there was no written word. Okay. Now, after the flood, you had... Uh, you had nations created. They went to the Tower of Babel. They all spoke the same language. They all gathered around. They were going to build a tower to God. And they were going to worship Satan. And then God confused their languages and they separated. So then God created nations. And part of the covenant with God made with Noah was that from that on, from that point on, man, every man couldn't do what was right in his own eyes. God set up governments to impose laws. And if a man murdered someone, the government had the responsibility to take his life. So you had restrictions on evil that God designed from governments. And then after a while there, God called Abraham and God chose a particular nation, a special nation, which we'll talk about here in a minute, that through Isaac and through Jacob would become the nation of Israel. Now this nation was be different than all the other nations of the world because God chose them to be his special people. So the ethnic people of Israel is God's only chosen people on earth, ethnically, as a nation. And so out of that nation was to, become, was to come a seed, the same seed that was promised to Eve in the garden, the, the, the seed that was going to represent humanity again. So after God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then he took his descendants, his children of Jacob, down into Egypt, and during that 400, 430 years they were in Egypt, of which 400 of that they were under slavery. The first 30 years they were not under slavery. They were, uh, Pharaoh's had a good relationship with them. Guest yeah, they were a guest program. They, they, they got to choose where they wanted to, to live. They like, chose the land of Goshen. It was productive land. Pharaoh was in, had a favorable position toward the children of of Jacob. After that, the next Pharaoh put them in slavery. And for 400 years, they were in slavery. And then God called them out of Egypt and brought them into uh, the wilderness. And he gave Moses the law, the Mosaic covenant, which was two things. The law was to be the, the national law they were to live under as a nation. So when they were called out of Egypt, they became the nation of Israel. And they had given the laws of the nation, which included tithing and other things, but they had to do the laws that were given to them as a nation. Just like we have national laws in America, they had 
the law of the Moses was the national law of Israel. And you had to obey that law whether you believed in God or didn't believe in God. You were part of the nation and you were part of the, the under the law of Moses. The second part of the, the covenant with Moses was the sacrificial system, which was to teach them that they never could attain to God's righteousness. Therefore, they had to have a sacrificial system in place to teach them and to show them that there had to be a payment for sin. And this was a way that they were atoned for or covered their sins until there was the true Lamb of God to take away their sins. But the Mosaic Covenant had those two things. Okay. So you said, um, backing up, that they, didn't, um, they, they could be unbelievers, but they still had to follow the laws of God, the, the Ten Commandments, when he said to believe in the Lord thy God and have no other gods before me. It sounded like you said, even if they weren't um, spiritually in tune with God, they, they were, as a nation, had to still obey those Ten Commandments? Is that Not just the Ten Commandments. All the laws that were given to Moses. That were, that were, the Ten Commandments was the basis for God's moral code yeah. for all people. And that never changed. It's God's basis. But there were multiple laws, dozens of laws, that God gave that the people had to obey. The, the Sabbath laws that the Pharisees made people do, they added to the restrictions, but those, the law of the Sabbath was for Israel, and everybody had to obey that whether they believed in God or not, whether they were right with God or not. They had to obey the law of the Sabbath. That was part of the law of, of the nation of Israel. And it was designed, the Sabbath was designed to show the rest of the world that Israel believed in the God of creation. Because on six days God created everything, and then on the seventh day He rested, and therefore they observed the seventh day as observance to the God of creation. And so the rest of the world would know that, that Israel followed the God of creation. And so that's why they did that. That's why the Sabbath was imposed. It wasn't for us to have a holy day. It was for the Israel to be demonstrated amongst the other nations that they were a holy people. Okay? So, but everybody had to do it. And so when Israel came out of Egypt, not everybody was a believer. Not everybody was delivered from sin, but everybody was delivered from slavery out of Egypt. So the whole nation came out of Egypt. doesn't mean everybody in the nation is righteous, but they were all part of ethnic Israel's chosen people, and they were all going to the promised land except those that died in the wilderness because God had ordained that the nation of Israel would be His chosen people and they would eventually get to the land of Canaan. So I'm talking about dispensationalism. There is a, this started a new dispensation, how God dealt with the world through Israel. And the only way you could come to know God was to come to the God of Israel. That's the way you came to know God from the time that God brought Israel out of Egypt until Christ showed up on the scene. The only way you could know God was to come to the God of Israel. Because that was the only God. He was the only true God. You had to know God because Israel had the privilege and the responsibility to reveal to the rest of the world who God is. Okay? And if you believed in God as a Gentile or as a Jew, and you came to the God of Israel and you obeyed what God told you to do, you would be saved and the salvation from Adam all the way to the last person in the millennial kingdom is, is done the same way. It's by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. You're dead in sins and the Spirit of God makes you alive. And then as you are made alive in the Spirit, you obey God in the dispensation that you're given to live in. So in the dispensation before the flood, they were righteous men. Noah was a righteous man. He believed God because he was born of God. 
Abraham believed God because he was called and was born of God. And everybody born of God has faith in God's provision. Even if you don't understand that Jesus was going to die on the cross at that time, you believed in the provision of God because you were born of God and you believed God and you did what God told you to do because of faith in Him. So you had people that were in Israel that offered sacrifices because they had a heart for God and you had people that offered sacrifices because it was the law. Today we have people that go to church because they're born of God. You have people go to church because it's a religion. Same thing. So during any dispensation, you can have people that seem to be on God's side, but they may not be born of God. But what we're talking about with dispensation is that in in different dispensations, God is operating differently. So after the Jews rejected Christ, the Jews were cut off. Now what does that mean when they were cut off? They were given the responsibility and the privilege to, to be the representative of God to the world. When they were cut off, then they were cut off from that responsibility, and the church was grafted into that responsibility. You cannot put the church and Israel as the same unit. They're separate units. They're separate entities. There was no church in the Old Testament, like some say that there was, and there's no Israel ethnically in God's uh, program during this time. Any Jew that becomes a Christian becomes a part of the church. Paul and the apostles were Jews. They were not identifying with the rejection of Christ by the Israel. They were not, they're not identified with Israel as a pagan nation. They're identifying as Christians following Christ. So even though they're ethnic Jews, they are part of the church. So in this church age or this church dispensation, everyone who is a believer is a, is a born-again believer identified by being baptized into Christ and having the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and you're part of the body of Christ. The 12 apostles who are the part of the church will rule over the 12 tribes of Israel during the kingdom age as part of the church, not part of Israel. So just that, that, that's clear. So, but I'm trying to establish this idea of dispensations. So during this time, after the church is finished or completed, the fullness has come in, then God will again turn to Israel, and then you will have the second advent, which gives birth to the millennial kingdom. And during the millennial kingdom, Jesus Christ will be on earth, and he will reign on earth, and there will be a different dispensation. People will still be born again the same way that are born in the kingdom. But there's a different dispensation. So if you say I'm a dispensationalist, in the biblical sense of the term, all you're saying is that at different stages of human history, God responded, did things in a different way to fulfill all the promises made and to get to the end result of what he purposed to do. Any questions about that? Can you touch on, you know, I've heard people um, clarify that it's still always been through Christ, but, you know, early on in that stage it was about their faith was in God but it was still on the coming Messiah. Right. Can you just... Okay, so the, the question is, the question is, how do you deal with dispensations before Christ and then after Christ, and how does, that, how does that work? Well, from the beginning, when Adam fell, there was a promise that there would be a seed that would provide provision for life again. I mean, the whole point of Adam's sin was that you died. 
you were cut off from God, you were separated from God, so therefore you needed to have a Savior. You need to have some means of being receiving life. And so the provision was made, given the promise to Eve, through her seed there would become, a, uh, through her seed, there would become life to man. So always, from the very beginning to time of Christ coming and being revealed as the Word that became flesh, from, from the very beginning, the provision was always looking forward to God making total provision. So even when God told Abraham that he was going to bless and that he was going to give you a land and a nation and that there would be salvation and a blessing to the Gentiles, it was always looking to the seed of Abraham, which was the seed of, of, of Eve, which was a promise of a redeemer that would be able to redeem mankind. So anytime you believe God's provision, you're believing in the ultimate provision that is Jesus Christ who died as the Lamb of God for the whole world. I mean, for the world, for those who are chosen of God. So that's always been the case. So anytime, even if you didn't understand the total provision of God and you didn't understand the total revelation of the coming Christ, you believe God because you have a heart for God because you've been born again. And that's, that's understand. You've got to understand being born again means you have God's nature putting in you in this body of flesh and this fleshly nature that you had. You have now a, a nature of God if you've been born of God and that nature of God will believe God. So all those throughout the Old Testament believed God and it was counted for them for righteousness. Okay, So they're believing in a coming provision or they're believing God's faithfulness to do what he said he's going to do. Yes? Oh, uh, if I understand correctly, so you're saying in the Old Testament, those who believed in God were associated with ethnic Israel. As if it, uh, in the New Testament, in the church age, those who believed in God are associated with the church. Now, during the time of John the Baptist, there didn't seem to be much of ethnic Israel being appointed to God. Uh, and John the Baptist was calling people to repentance. Okay, let me, let me clarify that. So the question is about what about the, the, the time period from, from Israel to the coming of Jesus and the John the Baptist teaching and then the church teaching. Be careful what I'm saying here. I'm saying that the only way you could know God in the Old Testament with Israel's time was that Israel was given the revelation of God. So to know God and to receive His revelation, you had to come to the God of Israel. It still, it still is clear that anybody that is coming to the God of Israel and receiving the truth of that revelation had to be born again. So that person had to be born again. So in the Old Testament, whether you were a Gentile or a Jew, if you truly believed in God's provision and, God's, and keeping God's law, you had to be born again. In the time of John the Baptist, in that period between the, the teaching of the Old Testament and the coming of Christ, he was preparing the way for the Jews who would be believers in Christ and follow Christ into the church age. He was preaching, he was teaching and preaching a baptism of repentance, meaning that all those who were being born of God during John's time would believe the message of John and be preparing their hearts to receive a Savior and, and a Messiah. And so it's the same thing. They were hearing the message from God by God's prophet. Uh, John the Baptist was the last prophet of the Old Testament. There was no prophet between Malachi and John the Baptist. They had 400 years where no prophet spoke. But when John came, he was a prophet. And he was, again, speaking the truth of God. And those people that believed that and responded to that were those who were being born of God. So, again, all the way through human history, it's the same way. The same way it will be true in the millennial kingdom when you've got Jesus, God himself, ruling on the throne. 
you still have to believe in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit regenerating your heart. And no, nobody in the, new, in, the, in the kingdom age will believe in Jesus who is visible unto salvation apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. That, so when we're talking about dispensations, we're just talking about that obviously throughout history that things change. Okay? We're not living in, the, in a, a time when we're observing the Mosaic Covenant. Right? And the Jews are not supposed to be either because Jesus said, I came and fulfilled that covenant. The Mosaic Covenant, we'll talk about the covenants here in a little bit. The covenants, the Mosaic Covenant was temporary and it was not to be continued after Christ came. Okay? So that means there's a different dispensation even for the Jews. All right, another theological position is this idea of covenant theology. Now, what is covenant theology? Covenant theology says that throughout history, there's one people of God that's the people of the covenant. And if you are a follower of God, you are part of the covenant of God. And there's some parts of that that you, we would agree with. We believe that God is a covenant-keeping God. He's a faithful to His promises. So when God promised Noah, I'm not going to destroy the world with a flood again, we can believe that promise. That's a covenant-keeping God. When God spoke to Abraham, though, and said, your descendants through Isaac and through Jacob, I'm going to have a land, I'm going to build a nation, and I'm going to come to you, and through David's covenant that David was the king, and the Davidic covenant saying that through David's lineage, I'm going to have a king that's going to rule over you, as my covenant people. Okay, so we're talking about that. And so when you get to that understanding of the coming kingdom and the coming king, the first thing uh, is when the angel appeared to Mary in Luke chapter 1, what did the angel say? And what did the angel mean by that? And I need to go back because I am kind of got off my, my revelation and my understanding of that. But I'll go ahead and read that passage. In Luke chapter 1, verse 31, or verse 30, the angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Okay, so hold your thought right there on that passage and go back and let's talk about this understanding and interpreting the prophetic word. Understanding how you interpret Scripture. So what are the rules of interpretation of Scripture? Context rules. Okay, context rules. That, that is the rule, context rules. Uh, so when God gave revelation... Some of that revelation is just, on the surface, it's blatantly obvious what he's saying. Okay? But if you have taken on covenant theology, and you have determined the church has replaced Israel, then you go back to the Old Testament where it seems very plain that God says, Israel is going to have a kingdom, and Jesus is going to reign on the kingdom. If you have taken the covenant theology position that the church has replaced Israel, you go back and you say, that can't be. 
because I have a foundational premise that Israel is no more, and they're not going to be anymore. So that has to be changed from the literal, clear interpretation of that passage to, no, that's just a symbolic, spiritual interpretation. It doesn't mean what it says. And that's the danger of that thing. So, the rules of interpretation are that when God spoke, He spoke to a certain people at the time He spoke. So, that you have to take that into account. When God spoke, who was He speaking to? And what is the context of His speaking? And how does that fit with the other scriptures? Okay, so when you're interpreting Scripture, you need to go to the original languages to understand the actual meaning of the words because sometimes the words get put into a word that could mean different things. So it's good, it's helpful to know the original meanings of the words. But then you have to understand who he's speaking to and the context of when he's speaking and why he's speaking and how that speaking or how that prophetic word fits with other passages of Scripture. Because again... If you begin with Genesis and you go to Revelation and there's one program of God that goes from beginning to end, it all has to fit. So you can't have a passage in Revelation that you interpret completely different than everything else in the Bible that doesn't fit. It's got to fit. So you compare Scripture with Scripture. So that's how you do it. Now let me give you an example, if I can find it here. Um, in Acts... And I'm, I'm giving you an example of an obscure so that you'll understand that when it's obvious, you even have to be more confident. So in Acts chapter 1, this is after the ascension of Christ. The apostles are waiting on Pentecost. And Peter, they're in the upper room. And in verse 14, in chapter 1 of Acts, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of his other brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. Oh, wow. The Scripture had to be fulfilled. So this is a, this is a monumental part of Scripture that had to be fulfilled. This is about the kingdom. This is about something big. No, he goes on. He says, the, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his portion in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of the wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels had gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, the field was called the field of blood. Then he gives us the scriptures. For it is written in the book of Psalms, which David wrote, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no man dwell in it. Now, you would have never read that in the Old Testament and said, Oh, Judas! It's obscure. And if you read that passage in Psalm chapter 69, I believe, um, 69 verse 25, if you read that Psalm, you would never apply that verse to Judas. Okay? And then he reads another psalm, which is Psalm uh, 109.8. And he says, His office let another man take. Again, if you read that psalm in both passages, you would not automatically 
assign that psalm to a fulfillment about Judas. But the scripture had to be fulfilled. Every word in the Old Testament that was written down has to be fulfilled exactly like it was intended to be fulfilled. And a lot of it, we would not even understand it unless it was given to us in the New Testament how it was fulfilled. Just like the passage that said, out of Egypt I will call my son. Now you read it in the passage, you know he's talking about Egypt coming, I mean Israel coming out of Egypt. But then when King Herod said, I'm going to kill all the babies, and the angel told Joseph and Mary to take Jesus to Egypt to hide or to, to escape the killing of the babies, and then it says, so that it could be quoted from Scripture, out of Egypt I call my son. So when, G, when the angel told, Noah, uh, told Joseph it was time to come back, that Herod was no longer killing babies, or he was no longer on the scene, then they came back, and it says, out of Egypt I call my son, quoting out of the Old Testament. So now we understand that there can be dual meanings, or dual fulfillments of the same prophecy, but definitely every word of the Old Testament that is given will have a fulfillment, even if it's obscure. So if it is obvious in the language that there's going to be this happening, how much more is it going to be fulfilled? Okay? So here we begin to talk about this position of there, there, there's this position of the kingdom, okay? The coming kingdom. Now, in Matthew chapter 6, if you understand the writing of the Gospel of Matthew, what is the theme of the Gospel of Matthew? He's a king. The king of what? The king that was promised to Mary that he would rule over the throne of David. Where's David's throne? Earthly Jerusalem. David's throne's not in heaven. Earthly Jerusalem is David's throne. That's the capital of Israel. It's an earthly kingdom. So, that, so when Jesus is talking to uh, the giving of the Sermon on the Mount, he is talking about the kingdom. He's presenting himself to be the king. He's talking about the kingdom. So the ones that are blessed in the first part of that sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the gentle, blessed are those who hunger. They're going to inherit the earth. They're going to be in the kingdom. These are the subjects of the kingdom. These are the ones that are going to go in, into that kingdom that I'm king over. Okay? Now, it does have ramifications for all of us who are born again and all that. I understand that. But he is speaking to the Jews, and he's speaking to them about a certain kingdom. So he gets there into chapter 6, and he's talking about the disciples. Uh, no, he said, therefore, do not let them be your father. Do not let them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. God is king over the universal kingdom. We understand that. God has a spiritual kingdom throughout all of human history of those who are truly saved. So what is he talking about when he says, Thy kingdom come? He's talking about a specific kingdom who he's going to be king over. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is the kingdom of God in heaven? There is perfect righteousness exhibited in heaven. Right? There's no sin. There's no rebellion. There's no... Per it's per 
So thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now let's go to Isaiah 2 and see how it's described on earth when the kingdom comes. Isaiah chapter 2. Verse 1, the word which Isaiah, the son of Amaz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Again, Judah and Jerusalem interpreted it to mean what? Jews, Jerusalem and Judea. Uh, Judea and Jerusalem mean what it says. It's talking about a location and a people. All right. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. And all the nations will stream into it. And many people will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths, that for the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will, remind, and will render decisions for the many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. That is a description of this coming kingdom. When the will of God that is done in heaven perfectly will be done the same way on earth. When the king comes back to earth to set up his kingdom. Now, in Revelation chapter 20, and it's important because that's where we get the term millennial. So if you go to Revelation chapter 20, because nowhere in the Old Testament does it, does it define how long the kingdom will last on this particular earth. Now we know from Daniel that the kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. But it only will last on this earth for a thousand years. And then it will be transferred to the future eternal earth. Okay, So in Revelation chapter 20, he says in verse 1, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, and having the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things he must be released for a short time. I saw thrones, and they set upon them, and the judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death will have, has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four winds of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up in, on the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved, and fire came down from heaven. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are alone. Also, that they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In that text, it's mentioned seven times, a thousand years. Do you think God meant a thousand years? Okay. So, that's, the where, that's where you get the millennial. Okay. So, if you're, if you're looking at a study of prophecy... There's three terms that are familiar, that are used. You have post-millennial, you have amillennial, and you have premillennial as the three main positions 
regarding the thousand-year kingdom of God. Okay? So what is post-millennial? And what do they believe? And where did it come from? Post means after. So obviously, the reference to post, ah, or millennial is a reference to the coming of Jesus Christ. So post-millennial would believe what the Catholic Church taught. The Catholic Church taught that the church was the new Israel. The church was the new Israel. They were the new nation of God, or the new people of God that would become a nation, and that they would conquer the entire world so that there would be an earthly kingdom that Christ would come back to inherit. So the Catholics believed in an earthly kingdom, and they believed that they were the ones to bring in the earthly kingdom. So the Crusades were part of that belief to go down and cleanse the, the land of, of Israel so that Christ could have a holy place to come back to. But the, the post-millennials believed that there would be an earthly kingdom. The thousand years was symbolic. It didn't mean thousand years. But to them, whenever the church gets through with its duty of conquering the world and making it a Christian world like the nations conquered the land of Canaan, same thing. <coughs> The Catholic Church believed that they were to go into the whole world because what, what was the Great Commission? Go into the whole world. So whereas Israel was commanded to go into Canaan, the Catholic Church said now, as the new Israel, we're commanded to go into the whole world and we're to conquer the entire world and once we get it conquered, there's an earthly kingdom that Jesus is going to come back and inherit. That's the, that's the post-millennial view. Okay? The amillennial view is everything about the kingdom is spiritual. Which means the thousand years is spiritual, symbolic. There is no literal kingdom on earth, so it's awe. So basically, if you say awe millennial, it's, you could say awe kingdom. In other words, they don't believe in a kingdom age on this earth. It's all spiritual. And so the book of Revelation is all symbolic. The thousand years is, is symbolic, spiritual language that there is no literal kingdom on earth. There's no coming back of Israel to claim the land. There's no coming of Jesus Christ to have a kingdom on earth. That would be the position of all millennial. In spite of the overwhelming, obvious evidence in the Old Testament about the coming kingdom that was prophesied that has to be fulfilled, they would say no because the church has replaced Israel and therefore, any prophecies about Israel being a true nation in a true kingdom age on earth is got to be a spiritual interpretation. And so they completely reject the rules of interpretation of the context and what God said when he said it. Because when you go back to the Old Testament, the multitude of passages, and this, if we got time, let's just look at a few real quick. So go to Isaiah again. We read the Isaiah 2 passage. Just turn to Isaiah 4. Isaiah chapter 4, talking about the coming remnant of Israel in the kingdom. In verse 1 it says, For seven women will take hold of one man in that day and say, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Let only let us be called by your name and take away our reproach. In that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and adornment of the survivors of Israel. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, and everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem, from her midst and by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, 
Then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke in the brightness of a flaming fire by night, and over for over all the glory will be a canopy, and there will be a shelter to give shade from the heat of day and refuge and protection from the storm of night. Again, a reference back to what God did when he brought them out of Egypt in the wilderness, but this is the eternal state when he gets, I mean, the state of the millennial kingdom. Then look in chapter 9 of Isaiah. <clears throat> Verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace over the, throne, over the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. Chapter 11 of Isaiah. Verse 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and strength the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And also righteous will be belt will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, and their young, lie, and the young, their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand over the viper's den, and they will not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord." As the waters cover the sea, then it will be about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. That's not describing anything now. That's not describing anything that's happened. That's not a spiritual interpretation of what may be happened spiritually. That is a literal rendition of what it's going to be like during the kingdom age. And again, you go back to the Garden of Eden, what happened? God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the earth, and they were to rule the earth. And at that time, from the time of, of the creation until the time of the flood, all the animals ate vegetation and fruits and things from the plants. None of them were meat-eating animals. So this goes back to what it was and what it was supposed to have been under Adam's rule. So the second Adam is coming back in the Revelation. We'll get to that when we get to the Revelation. He's coming back. The reason that you have a seven-seal scroll in the book of Revelation is because the seven-seal, the, the scroll is the right to rule the earth, the title deed of the earth, the, the dominion of the earth, and it's sealed. And the seven seals open the seals so that the, the second Adam, the Lamb of God, can come down and bind Satan for the thousand years and take back the dominion that, he, that Adam lost, and the second Adam will regain that, and he will rule for a thousand years to display and demonstrate what it should have been like for man to rule the earth. It all fits from beginning to end. Every passage of Scripture fits into the narrative that God has laid down that what's going to happen. Joe? Well, what happened was, all right, I said that the Roman Catholic Church was the one that based out, the post-millennial view came out of the Catholic Church. The Reformed Church had split. Some of them believed in the Catholic understanding that, that there's a post-millennial, but many of the Reformed didn't agree with the Catholic that there would be an earthly kingdom at all, so they developed the position of amillennialism, which was also part of the earlier church. Augustine and some of them believed that since Israel was destroyed, that God was finished with Israel, and therefore they began to adopt that same belief that there wouldn't be a literal kingdom for Israel because God had rejected them. Okay, 
And we'll, ta- we'll talk next week when we get to the point of why that's not true. But the amillennial church would probably be, majority of reformed churches are amillennial because they don't believe in the uh, true coming of Christ to set up the kingdom. Okay, and when we get further down the line, we'll talk about the different views of the rapture. It's not anything to do with that, but it does affect, and it comes out of the understanding of what you believe about the kingdom. Nick. Oh, that is no small matter to not interpret that properly. So if you look back to history, anytime the church has embraced uh, the replacement theology, uh, the people of Israel die. Jews around the world yes. die. Yes. Because then God is through with them. God doesn't need them That's true, and that's why uh, the Catholic Church participated in the Holocaust. That's why the Catholic Church participated in the Crusades. One last, one last passage we're going to have to stop today and pick up next week. In Isaiah chapter 65, it talks about the elements of the kingdom age with the renovated earth that's going to be destroyed. A lot of the earth is going to be destroyed during the tribulation coming, the judgment coming, and therefore it has to be renovated. But in the Isaiah 65 passage, again, it talks about the period of the kingdom age. Verse 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing, and her people for gladness. And I will also rejoice in Jerusalem, be glad in my people. There will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build another inhabit. They shall not plant another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my chosen ones shall wear out the work of their hands. And they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It was also shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust. And dust shall be the, the serpent's food, for, and they shall do no harm, or evil harm in my holy mountain, says the Lord. So in that passage, it talks about the fact that there will be no disease that will cause death. No infant mortality, no one will die of disease before their age. Everyone will live to be at the age of 100. At the age of 100, if you've not been born again, you will die. And that's the only reason you will die other than God kills you for sin during the kingdom age because he's going to rule the rod of iron and all those who are, that perpetrate any kind of evil, he will kill. But other than that, you will live to the age of 100. If, uh, if, you are, if you're not born again, you will die. If you are born again, you, you live the entire thousand years. So that's going to happen. So those born in the kingdom that are born again will live the entire thousand years. So you get to the end of the thousand years, there's going to be a rebellion, and that rebellion will be a youth rebellion. Uh, everyone that rebels when Satan is released from the, the pit, that re- rebels at the end of the kingdom age will be under the age of 100, which will be considered youthful because other people will live for a thousand years. So um, that's kind of a, another view of the kingdom. Just some, just some exact, and you could go through the entire Old Testament and find verse after verse after verse talking about the kingdom age. And what were the Jews doing the whole time that they were talking about Jesus? They were talking about 
is he the Messiah? Is he going to bring in the kingdom? In fact, as you, one last passage and we'll stop here. But as Jesus is fixing to ascend in heaven, he's speaking to his disciples who have heard everything he said, who understand who he is and understand everything's going on. They say in verse 6, and so when they had come together and were asked him right before he's ascended, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They understand that he is the king and there's going to be a kingdom. And Jesus does not deny it. He says, it is not for you to know the time uh, or epics, the times or the seasons which the Lord has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power to do what? To be my apostles, to start the church, and the church will continue. And next week we will talk about the timing of the, the timing for the church, the timing for the Gentiles, and the timing for Israel, which sets the stage for the understanding why we have the events of the second advent. Okay? So we'll pick up there next week. So remember, write down any questions that I've created that I didn't explain. There's so much information, and, I, and I've gone through so much of this that it's easy for me to think you know, you, know, you know all that I'm saying, and you understand everything, and if it may cause more confusion than not. So please stop me or write down questions and say, wait a minute, I don't, I don't understand. 